You're listening to History 605. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, the state historian for the state of South Dakota, and we're starting this podcast. This is the first episode. So today what I'd like to do is kind of get under the hood a little bit about how trained historians think historically. And it's not particularly um, mystical or super difficult or anything, and so what I'd like to do is just kind of go through the analysis and some of the ways in which Historians approach the past, explain the past, seek to understand it, and then in many cases build an argument about why something occurred or why you should be interested in something uh, in order to capture your attention and, and teach you something that occurred in the past and learn from those experiences of uh, those who've gone before us. Every episode that we're going to do is going to have a so what, essentially a so what, why should anybody care about this particular topic and so forth? And this is really the way that a listener or a reader or somebody who goes to museums should engage with the book they're reading or the exhibition that they're viewing or the historical episode they're thinking about is, so what? Why should I be interested in this? You know, hi history is not just one damn thing after another, not just kind of one extraneous detached series of events, but they're all connected. And certainly those things that exist in the past, those episodes, can be, we can apply critical thinking to them in order to answer that question about the so what of why something happened and why it's relevant to us today. So I'd like to kind of take you through a few of these um, issues and uh, so forth with this first episode. But first off, just a bit of a uh, my, bi my background and my biography and so forth. I grew up here in um, uh, South Dakota, one of the South Dakota's more historical towns, DeSmit. Uh, graduated from high school there, went to SDSU, and then went in the Air Force. And one of the things that the military is very good at is educating and training its members. And through a series of events, I was fortunate enough to get sent to grad school in history at uh, Nebraska, and then a PhD at the University of Kansas and then taught history at the Air Force Academy. And when I retired, I came back to South Dakota. I worked at Dakota State for, for five years. Last December, so December of 2019, became the state historian. Um, so that's a little bit about my background. And I've grown to really appreciate South Dakota by uh, the means that many people learn to appreciate something, by doing without it. So having lived outside of South Dakota, for a number of years, uh, over two decades, there was a lot of aspects of the life in South Dakota that I grew to appreciate. And so that's a bit of my background. So one of the things that the show will do then is, is discuss recent books that are out, by uh, published by the press or maybe by the South Dakota Historical Society Press or maybe other presses and so forth that have relevance to the state. But I wanted to spend this episode in particular talking about how history seeks to explain change over time. I kind of joke with students from time to time uh, that history is almost like a math formula, that you can H equals C over T, or H equals change over time. And that's how you demarcate uh, things that are new and begin to kind of think about why is it changing, whether it be technology or various traditions about holidays or food or uh, family 
um, roles and responsibilities and family um, ties, or whether it be about a military battle uh, or a person, even a person's life and the things that change over time. That change is what produces history uh, when we think about it. If you think about if nothing ever changed, then there would be no history. But things uh, obviously do change. And um, with that change, that's the thing that we examine, is that history equals change over time. Um, and that often can give people a way to kind of frame uh, what history is. And then they can begin to kind of understand the argument that an author in a book uh, is building around a certain historical event or a change that occurred in the past. And so that's how historical knowledge then is made, is by taking facts and evidence across a time period, watching them change, and then explaining that change. So, and that's really what we, what we call historical method. That's one of the things that you do is, is by explaining that change. But the first thing that begins that process, that method, is asking a good question. And by asking a good question, you look at as much of the relevant information as possible. Um, historians will often go into archives to look at records and so forth that's relevant to the question that they're asking. If you go into an archive without a question, you will be quickly lost in the sea of documents and wondering, uh, what am I to make of all of this? The question then really becomes a way to focus your efforts on documents that are relevant to your question. So you might have a question about, why did DeSmit lose in the state bees to Custer in 1970-something or other, right? And there's a lot of ways you could answer that question and a lot of places you could go to ask to get that question answered. But uh, the first person you'd have to go to is maybe the coaches. You can talk to the coaches. Maybe you could go to the archives at uh, the, the state archives. Maybe you could go to the South Dakota State High School Activities Association and the archives that they have about different tournaments and so forth. Maybe you could talk to the referees and so forth. But if you didn't have that particular tournament and, or that particular game to focus your efforts, the amount of evidence to wade through would just be enormous. Then once you kind of wade through what you think is particular evidence that's relevant to the question about who won the state championship and why, let's say, you might find out things along the way that help you reframe, refocus, or tighten your question that make it make the question more relevant to the people who participated at the time. So you may go into the archives with the question about who won the state bees in a certain year. You may come out of the archives now with evidence that would indicate that maybe there was a cheating scandal going on, and maybe the cheating scandal involved the umpires or the referees. And so maybe then your question is, well, the better question is, why did the referee participate in that behavior? Why did the referee participate in that scandal? And then that becomes what the book would be about. And that's probably far more interesting than your question, your first question of why did DeSmet win or lose or Custer uh, versus Custer in that, in that state tournament, is when you kind of uncover some things, your question can get more precise, more detailed, and more relevant. 
Now, why do historians start with questions? Uh, that's a very good question. And the answer is that it helps to defeat bias that you might bring. In science, they make knowledge, biologists, physicists, chemists, and so forth, make knowledge by putting out a hypothesis. And with that hypothesis, then they go into the lab and see if their hypothesis is true. This drives their question down a certain lane that is biased based on what they have in their lab as far as materials they can use, as far as students or support that might help them run experiments and so forth. But if a historian were to hypothesize something, let's say go back to my metaphor about high school basketball, that I say, well, um, DeSmit won that game against Custer because they're just better people in DeSmit, right? That might be a little bit, that might share my, show my bias about that particular game. But if I just go in there with the question and not the hypothesis, then I don't have the hypothesis driving bias into my research. And so that's why historically, or that's why historians use the question and then in a kind of an iterative process with the relevant evidence they find, tighten the question over the time they're doing their research and then coming out always with the hope of making the question and the subsequent answer more and more interesting about what they're researching. Now, there's any number of mistakes in logic that historians can make. And so, um, and many of them are uh, made by people all the time. Uh, and I'm going to go over a couple of them today, but there's any number of ways. These are, you know, akin to a logical fallacy that a philosopher might uh, teach about in a philosophy class in high school or college, that uh, if you in, uh, exercise this logical fallacy, you'll get to an answer that's wrong, or maybe it's right, but only by accident. So a couple of these uh, fallacies here, and if you're really interested in Historian's Fallacies, there's a great book. It's been out since 1970, published by, I think, one of America's greatest living historians, a gentleman by the name of David Hackett Fisher, who teaches at Brandeis University. He's written great books about the American Revolution, George Washington in particular, really good, uh, well-researched books and wonderful writing. Uh, David Hackett Fisher is worth checking out. He has a book uh, that he published in 1970 that kind of discusses these fallacies that historians need to watch out for when they're doing their research. And I thought I'd go over a couple of them um, today on the podcast. So the first one is one I see used frequently by all kinds of people when they're thinking about something historical, and it's called presentism. Um, this favors things that are easily recognized by us and ignores or misunderstands things that are no longer around. So when you wind up doing this, when you, when you use the presentism fallacy, uh, you can, it, 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 it's hard to understand, accurately understand the event or the people involved. Um, and what's most relevant to us may have nothing to do with the issue at the time. So for example, um, one has to keep an eye open to all the sources in order to explain the past. Uh, my um, research, in my research, I went to Eisenhower's library in order to understand a question about Operation Overlord and the invasion of France in 1944 that General Eisenhower commanded. 
um, with American, British, Canadian, Polish, and French troops. Um, and I wanted to go through his message traffic, so the formal messages that he sent to General Marshall back um, in Washington at the War Department. So this is, this is essentially him talking to his boss two days before D-Day. And the message was a long message, but the first part of the message was the briefest uh, part, uh, and it dealt with all the complications of the actual logistics and the combat capability of his soldiers, sailors, airmen that are about to launch this invasion. He says to Marshall, words to the effect, I'm ready to go. We have everything we need. The soldiers are geared up. We're just waiting for the weather to clear. Then the rest of the message was about two paragraphs. The rest of the eight and a half by 11 piece of paper was filled with the real problem that Eisenhower was seeking to solve and that he was asking General Marshall to solve for him. And that is, when the Allies invade, what are the French resistance going to do? Now, he had a plan for this, but he wasn't allowed because of President Roosevelt wasn't allowing him to work with the French resistance. And this was Eisenhower telling General Marshall, this is going to be a problem. Now, when I first started reading this message, my assumption was that the problem here was de Gaulle and that Eisenhower would be explaining, General de Gaulle was the leader of the French resistance, Eisenhower would be explaining that the problem was de Gaulle to General Marshall. But as I read the message, the problem Eisenhower was saying to General Marshall was not de Gaulle, it was Roosevelt. And at first I couldn't quite take in that message because I was bringing to it my 21st century notion of what had since occurred uh, in the war, how the war ended, the Cold War, and France always being kind of a problematic partner in the Cold War politics with the United States. So I assumed as I started reading this about this French issue that Eisenhower was going to be saying General de Gaulle is being a real problem and I don't know what I'm going to do. But instead, essentially what he was saying to General Marshall was, President Roosevelt is a real problem, and we need to, you need to help me figure out what to do. And that helped defeat my presentism, the logical fallacy of foisting my 21st century understanding on that problem onto Eisenhower. When you just have the question, as I talked about before, you let the evidence speak to it itself. And if you are mindful of your present-day understandings of the way you think their world worked, then you can take that bias out of the picture and let them speak for themselves. So uh, that's one example, and I often hear that uh, discussed. There are, there are people, too, who often say, well, we can't cast our morality of the 21st century onto their morality, which is also true, um, but that's not really the issue that I'm talking about here today. Another way that we use history is kind of what's called didactic, or looking for lessons from the past in order to shed light on a current choice or problem that we face today. This is the reason most of us say that we study history, right? Um, and it's there, that, and there's really nothing wrong with that. However, drawing quick conclusions from a little bit of knowledge about the past often clouds our present choices. 
it can all too quickly ignore all the complexities of the past event. And therefore, we wind up drawing wrong conclusions about it. You know, one needs to know what is similar to that case and what is different in order to wisely learn a lesson that can be applied to a current choice. So, for example, uh, there are many people comparing American withdrawal from Afghanistan today to our withdrawal from and our subsequent loss in the Vietnam War. Now, making a comparison that will work historically requires knowing the similarities and the differences between America's involvement in Afghanistan over the past 20 years and America's involvement in Southeast Asia from the 1950s until 1975. Uh, I don't know what, the, what Afghanistan will look like in a couple of years from now, but whatever it will be, it will be based on Afghan choices and relevant choices in various national capitals around the world, uh, their allies, their neighbors, and so forth. It won't be based on choices that were made in Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City. Those political choices aren't at play here. So a didactic comparison that falls short or is often superficial is because the people making them don't take the time to have the working understanding of the historical why compared to the why of the current situation. So you may be a bit flabbergasted after all this. Most of us who enjoy history have spent our life hearing and repeating the, uh, the thought that we learn history in order not to repeat it. In my view, that's not precise enough. We, we learn history because it will teach you the best questions to ask in order to understand a current issue more clearly, not necessarily to provide us the ready answer to apply to a current situ situation uh, that's comparable to a past situation. So by asking a good question in your current dilemma, you can develop a better answer that hopefully provides you a solution for your current dilemma, whatever that may be. And the way to formulate a really good question for a current problem can be and often is looking at a historical uh, character, historical issue, event, thing from the past very closely and kind of read a lot about it, examine it, think about it, think about the human uh, behavior that's going on, what are the people doing, how are they reacting, and then formulate a question based on just what you've learned about people experiencing the same type of situation. Also, there's a question of sources. You know, we weigh sources all the time. Uh, what is a good source versus what is a poor source? What are better sources versus what are weak sources? And so forth. And then try to triangulate people who were there, people who saw things, documents that were written at the time, and understand why they were written, why were those sources produced, what was the intent of that uh, by the person who created it. So this really becomes difficult to kind of tease out historical intent, historical meaning. And in the end, often historians, uh, people who write history, uh, museum uh, directors who design exhibits and so forth, really are forced to make difficult choices about how to weigh the sources that they're working with in order to build the arguments and explain the history that they're seeking to. So try to understand history as change over time, watching out for historical fallacies such as uh, presentism or such as being didactic about a lesson from the past that can be understood very superficially or incompletely, and to think deeply about a better question that can be answered based on what you know, and never give up on 
trying to formulate an even better question than, than you may have thought of yesterday about that same issue once you know more. So with that, this is History 605. And my name is Dr. Ben Jones, a state historian for the great state of South Dakota. And I look forward to bringing you more podcasts about history, about South Dakota, and about the Great Plains in the very near future. This is uh, sponsored by the South Dakota Historical Society Foundation uh, in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. And we would appreciate you sharing this, and we would love your support spreading the word about the program and the podcast.